Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. He's the man, Alex Dykes, and I'm Tim Masso. The podcast starts now. Alex, we're going to start with a bit of whimsy here. We love convertibles, uh, including hypothetical convertibles. What non-convertible car would you have converted to a convertible or Targa? Ah, this is an interesting one. Uh, and the origin in my head was uh, we don't see many convertibles anymore, and I think that's a shame. Um, convertibles are more popular in countries with crappy weather compared to the average American weather in California, Florida, Texas, etc. So why don't we have more ragtops? Um, I would love to see. This is gonna. This this may really throw you for a loop here. I would love to see an inexpensive convertible like a Nissan Kicks. Chop the top off. Keep all four doors. Uh, I don't know. Maybe PT Cruiser convertible like it with uh, some sort of weird tailgate hatch thing back there, and make it a twenty-five thousand dollar convertible. That would be epic. Okay, I sort of envisioned this segment as like the Nissan Murano Cross Cabrio Memorial segment. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, I mean, a Nissan Aria convertible that would be that would be cool too. Oh, okay, that's more like it. There we go. We uh, have no, a very I... bad Photoshop uh, that I will have Brian put in the uh, face in the uh, the YouTube uh, video segment here. So if you're listening to this, go check out the YouTube video. Check out this atrocious Photoshop that I whipped up in 30 seconds this morning. Oh boy. Okay. So you guys are going to definitely want to check that out. I'm going to say that this might not be out of reach. Something like a Toyota FT or a Subaru BRZ with like a target top modification would be a decent stand in for something like the early 90s Honda Del Sol. Not a full on convertible, but enough wind in the hair that it feels like a different vehicle and it gives you a different experience. I don't think a full convertible chop of one of those is possible, but a Targa would be really neat. Yep. I think I think something to this is going to sound again horrific, uh, and it might trigger some people. Sorry for this trigger warning. Uh, something along the lines of a Sebring resurrection would make sense. The Chrysler Sebring sold in absolutely enormous numbers, and the Ford Mustang convertible never really replaced it volume-wise in the United States. We also had funny little things like the Volkswagen Cabriolet, that that you know tiny little ragtop thing. We just don't have any cheap and cheerful ragtop fun for the family that might want to have a third car, honestly, uh, or a, a fun weekend commuter car, something like that. I, I would love to see cheap and cheerful convertible. I'm thinking like cheap and cheerful convertible today means like base engine convertible Camaro or Mustang. Like, I think that's the only thing that's a stand in. Pretty much for, it. Yeah. I mean, you're thinking like rental car prices and like mm -hmm. rental car models. Because yeah. when I think Sebring, I think, you know, the car to buy or rent when you're in Florida, like the baseball spring training car. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely a rental car there. Definitely real estate agent in Palm Springs. You know, that was that was sort of like the, the Sebring demographic as well. <laughs> I would hope that if you're shopping in Palm Springs, your realtor's driving a Bentley, like really. I, no, I, I want my realtor to drive something cheap because I want I want them to know that, you know, their commission is a little bit lower than average. Maybe they're the one and a half percent realtor, not the three percent realtor. If I see a realtor in Palm Springs driving a Sebring, I wonder if I'm about to buy some sort of a mobile home. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. What kind of house are we seeing if you're driving that? Okay, okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go totally nuts in the spirit of the late lamented Maybach Londelay. I would love to see a Rolls Royce Phantom standard or extended wheelbase with either a uh, Londelay uh. conversion 
where you have a covered driver and an open passenger compartment or a brome where you have an open driver and a covered passenger compartment. So interesting. Okay. I don't want it to just be like a four door 1960s continental type of convertible. I want to have like a full blown neoclassical 1930s coach build revival with either the driver or the passengers out in the open. That would be my. Okay. I, I would go for a Lincoln Aviator chop top. Um, I think the lines are very horizontal, so it would work. It would have this epic, very long, sleek look. Keep the third row. Again, some sort of crazy hatch door thing in the back there. Whack the top off. Three rows, seven seats of open air fun. The buffeting in the back would be epically bad, but you could always add some sort of like extra windshield. And maybe this is the kind of dual cowl phaeton contraption that uh, that would be absolutely epic. Um, I mean, admittedly, that sort of dual cowl, dual whatever, you know, windshield vibe would kind of give me, I don't know, 1940s Nazi, you know, limousine vibes. But <laughs> but aside from that, aside from that part, I think it could be epic. Yeah. So that maybe that's the ticket for glorious leaders. I would say for those of us who are less glorious, if you wanted to fix the Nissan Z and it needs fixing, one major step towards doing that, mm. some sort of a removable roof to make it a lot more fun. Let's say you can't do anything about the nose. You can't do anything about getting ahead of the synchros in like second and third gear. But you can give us a convertible option again with the same twin turbo engine and a six speed. Now that's rational, yes. My uh, my all, my my rational pick would be a uh, a Polestar two, because I think that would actually look good. Volvo has done convertibles before, just not on this platform, and uh, you know it's it'd be battery electric, so it would be future thinking, forward thinking. The back seat's already kind of small, so no loss there. If you shrink it even further, or or you know eliminate it somehow, make it a, a two plus two kind of thing. That could be the convertible for the next century. And it does seem like we're possibly going to get some convertible EVs actually in soon. I'm assuming that uh, we ever get the one from Tesla, of course, that might be in the uh, in the pile. But from other companies as well, it seems like Genesis is really betting big on a possible convertible model. Yeah, I would also say that realistically, that, that whole idea of taking a vehicle that's basically a hatchback and turning it into a convertible, that's something Mini explored not altogether successfully with their coupe Mm -hmm. and their convertible, but I'm still intrigued by the idea. And I would love to see what a coach builder could do with something like a Volkswagen GTI or like a Golf R, Mm because I really think that it would be fun, maybe in the spirit of something like the uh, Drop Top Customs Challenger conversion, where it's it's sort of a, a quasi official deal where you order it through a dealer, you take delivery through the dealer, one company warrants the top, one company warrants the rest of the car. I would like to see what a custom builder could do with a GTI or like a Golf R, because I think it would be a lot of fun, yeah. especially if you can keep the rear seats. And not I would worry them. about the cost. Like the coach built version of the Challenger convertible, that's pretty pricey. It's but 
Yeah. yeah, I would I would love to see a cheap car with a manual top. Like that would be the easy thing, easy way to do something like this. Again, not not specifically kicks, but I think that actually could be kind of cute. Something like that. That's a car that's intrinsically inexpensive, value oriented, manual top to keep costs and repair costs low, and could just be that kind of fun weekend car that we just don't see anymore. The average American in the 1960s was aspiring to have this weekend car and that's where Corvairs and things like that oftentimes uh, the Corvair convertibles oftentimes ended up going but it doesn't seem like that's really a market anymore cars have become so expensive that nobody's really doing that fun third car fourth car well Mazda <laughs> yeah I mean that's about it but the number of people Mazda loves to brag about the number of people that daily drive their MX-5 well, that makes sense. I mean, it's economical, it's reliable, mm -hmm. it's fun, and it's easy to maneuver in traffic. I think there's probably a great middle ground. Like, obviously, doing a full chop top conversion on GTI is going to cost a million bucks. If you keep the rear seat, you know, you, you completely remove the roof, you fit some sort of stowable, you know, drop top to it. I, I think the best way to do this is the way Smart and Fiat did their convertibles, mm -hmm. where you Keep the A pillar, B pillar, and C pillar. You keep the roof rails and you just have like a full length pullback roof. Like something that stops short of a full open car, yeah. but gives you a very substantial skylight, like from front to back. Yeah, Chrysler's done that a bit here and there. You can get something along those lines in the current Wrangler, the power soft top thing. Um, and they gave it a whirl in, with various vehicles here and there. But I, I wouldn't mind that. Uh, too much. There was a time where you could also get some, some uh, I can't remember what it was a factory thing or it was an aftermarket conversion, but you could get them on like the BMW little hatchback thing that they sold for a hot second in the US. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. That was like that the 318 something. Hatchback. Yeah. yeah um, the hatchback, actually, the basic one. That's not actually, that's actually not a bad idea. Speaking of BMW, BMW M2, because the Z4 mm. is not a sports car anymore. Yes, that's true. Um, BMW M2 is out. I haven't driven it yet, unfortunately, but it does look interesting. The, the problem I have with the two series is that the two series and three series and four series are all so very closely related that the curb weight is also all very close and the size inside and outside is all very close. I almost wonder why they didn't just make different performance levels of three M3 and M4, etc. rather than, I don't know. I'm, I'm confused by some of BMW's uh, product lineup lately. Now that makes sense because BMW's model designations haven't made sense for years. May as well be a confusing lineup too. Okay, so here's my show car wish because this is never going to happen. But I would love, periodically Porsche does speedster cutdowns of the 911. Mm -hmm. I would love to see what a cutdown, you know, raked windshield, minimalist Taycan Turbo S speedster ah. would look like. I would love to see the the full speedster treatment given to a Taycan. And yeah. I, I would love to see them sell even five of them. I'd be happy. That's an interesting point because Porsche has been pretty dedicated to the, the convertible form factor and we don't have a convertible Taycan. That seems like a misstep. It would be tough to do. I imagine there's a million reasons having to do with like federalization, crash safety, standardization, mass production, but still, in the spirit of something like the electrified Mercedes-Benz SLS, even if you can only make 10 of them and they cost a trillion dollars, I would be happy to live in a world where that exists. I would assume that the structural battery pack could lend additional torsional rigidity. So that might make 
that process easier than cutting the top off of uh, a unibody 911 or something like that. Porsche, please make this happen. Yeah, All let's right. give it a whirl. Now, speaking of EVs, you asked me the other night, can EVs bring back the sedan? And I would love to hear your affirmative case for this because I struggled to come up with any reasons. I got like one I... or two things. I am I am curious on this one because the Model 3 is one of the best-selling sedans in the U.S. currently, and it has, until very recently, outsold the Model Y as the best-selling uh, Tesla in the United States. It outsells the 3 Series by some astronomical margin these days. And I'm wondering, now that we have the Ionic 6 launching from Hyundai and there are rumors of other EV sedans, and we have a lot of EV startups that are working on sedans still, like the Lucid Air, etc., I'm wondering if if the desire for range, therefore the need for efficiency, leads customers to maybe reevaluate the sedan or some sort of liftbacky sedan contraption. Well, there's there's two separate things going on here as I see it. First, the, the companies that are considering EV sedans are companies that never gave up on sedans, which means principally like foreign automakers, because Detroit's given up on sedans. So if I were to see like Chevy suddenly decide that it's bringing back the Impala SS as an EV, I would have to adjust my expectations. But I think right now the only companies that are looking at EV sedans are the ones that never gave up on internal combustion sedans. The other thing that I'm wondering is whether the benefits of going full sedan as opposed to like a very aggressive car-based or car-biased crossover mm. are going to pull us all the way back to what a sedan used to be. Because back in the 90s, trucks meant, for the most part, body mm -hmm. frame. Even stuff like the Explorer, which was a mass market midsize, was based on a Ranger ladder frame. And these days, we've got EVs that are technically SUVs, but I mean, for God's sakes, they're cars. The Ionic 5 was Motor Trend's SUV of the year. That's that's impossible because it's not an SUV. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Polestar 2 on that basis could have been marketed yeah. Dan or an SUV. And I that's and that's an interesting question. So is the Mach-E to you more of a sedan or an SUV? Because it has honestly a sedan-like silhouette and sedan-like ground clearance. Would you call it a sedan? Well, I'm six feet tall, and when I walk by an Ionic 5, I'm looking down at the roof. When I walk by a Mustang Mach-E, I'm not quite looking down on the roof. So in terms of people's expectations about profile and ride height, the way it looks and the way they feel behind the wheel, they don't know that they've got five millimeters of ground clearance under the Mach-E. So I would say, yes, it's an SUV if you consider sports and utility to be the defining characteristics. It is not a truck. I mean, that I, that I can tell you right with, without any consideration. It's not a truck. Could it be sporty and utilitarian? Yeah, I, I think it clears that bar. But there are just so many vehicles now that are already so car biased, like from the truck car spectrum that defines a crossover. Our crossovers are ever mm -hmm. more car-like. So I would say even if the EV doesn't bring back the sedan, the wagon itself is almost back completely. This might blow your mind. Uh, a Mach-E is only one-tenth of an inch higher than an Ionic 5. So they are basically the same, except the shape. The Ionic 5 has got that funky proportion thing because it always feels smaller than it is on the outside because it's this uh, sort of Tron version of a Volkswagen Golf kind of thing. 
Um, but a Mach-E and Ionic 5, they are about uh, six inches lower, higher off the ground, roof height, than a Tesla Model 3. Yeah, so I guess it, that surprises me because it feels like when I'm next to the Mustang, it's a lot taller, but I guess numbers don't lie. The Ionic 5 mm-hmm. is interesting because it's, it's got a huge wheelbase for the size of vehicle it is. So it's got a lot of interior volume. Yes. And interestingly, the Ionic 6 actually has a wheelbase that's shorter. Um, the EV6, though, probably does blur this line, even though it's a hatchback. It definitely has, again, a more sedan-like profile than the Ionic 5. It's only about four inches higher in terms of its roof height than a Model 3. But keep in mind, Model 3 is actually pretty low for a sedan in historic terms. I mean, if we go back to the 1980s and you take a look, I don't know, at a, a Ozobile Cutlass Sierra or something like that, it's going to be about as high off the ground roof height-wise as an Ionic 5 or a Mach-E. So these, these forms change over time. But I am interested that, that uh, you know, we have this, is, this a, is it a sedan? Is it what, what is the Mach-E? I don't know what this thing is, but it's definitely not a Ford Explorer. But no. then it's also not a Ford Taurus from the company that said they abandoned sedans. We're going to get something more boxy in this segment from General Motors and their Blazer and, and uh, Equinox EVs. But it does look like uh, these startup companies are still interested in this long range. And the numbers are telling. So Ionic 5 gets about 250 miles in its longest range all-wheel drive model um, with the same battery pack that the Ionic 6 gets. And Ionic 6 will do 320 miles of range with that same battery pack, same motor setup, just lower sleeker profile, or all the way up to 361 miles of range. It's going to be the most efficient vehicle in North America. It'll actually tie with the most uh, efficient versions of the uh, the Lucid Air, only a whole lot less money, um, thanks to that sedan-like profile. Yeah, I think that car-biased crossovers, where we've now we've navigated that entire spectrum from the truck to the car, we're stopping, I would say, 10% short of like a full-blown car because there's no doubt that wagons have made their comeback. Wagons won the war. Like, I don't know how they did it through the body snatchers. We didn't see it coming. But most <laughs> Americans are now driving either a subcompact or compact or a midsize wagon with a two and a half inch lift. And mm-hmm. these are car platforms. Uh, they are built like cars. They drive like cars. They have car, you know, like four wheel independent suspension. And, you know, the only thing that you can say is that they're marketed as SUVs, but they're cars. A Jaguar I-Pace is a car. A Mercedes EQS is a car. I mean, you look at all these vehicles that have hatches on the back, and all that really changes is their size. The ground clearance isn't that different, although the I-Pace does have some some Mm -hmm. jack-up capabilities. But I don't think sedans will come back for the same reason I don't think coupes will come back. They're lifestyle statements. People buy them primarily for their fashion value today. That's why you see things like the Ionic um, 6 being a very fashionable celebration of the car Mm -hmm. as a car. It's not an accidental purchase. The cars that are still selling now, things like the Mustang, the Corvette, the Challenger, the Chrysler 300, the Dodge Charger, they're all very lifestyle-oriented. They're they're for people who are interested in cars. Mm -hmm. They're not accidental buys. Like, you don't just walk into a dealer and say, oh, you know, well, I was considering an Explorer, but I really want to walk out the door with a Mustang Dark Horse. So the Model 3 is the one that intrigues me because this customer could have gone in and they could have said, no, I want the Model Y. And over time, Tesla could have adjusted their production to, 
drastically cut Model 3 production, drastically increase Model Y production. They're very closely related to one another. But we still see massive sales on Model 3. I think that's for now, not forever. Uh, there's a couple things that the Model 3 has going for it. First, it launched as the, quote, affordable Tesla, and it had mm -hmm. at least a three-year head start on the Model Y. So it had name recognition, but it also is the affordable Tesla a lot of people think of because it's just an advantage to have a head start. And the fact that now the Y is outselling the 3, I think that's a trend that's going to gain momentum. And when people realize that there is a compact crossover Tesla that they could buy for similar money, more and more often they're going to buy that. What mm -hmm. I don't think is going to happen is I don't think there's going to be a second generation Model 3. I think Tesla will do what it did with the Model S. They'll update it for 15 years. Uh, and then eventually that goes with everything Tesla does. Let's be honest. It is worth noting, though, that it, it is worth noting that in this sales reduction of Model 3, that uh, Tesla has cut the number of ways you can get your Model 3. And I think that's led to part of this reduction. There's no long range Model 3 at the moment. Uh, there's either the standard one, which is not going to get the full tax credit coming soon. It's going to actually drop down because it uses the Chinese made battery pack. And then there's the Model 3 Performance. So there's there's no there's not quite the full lineup that we had before. And I wonder if that has artificially lowered its its sales rather than having the the complete smorgasbord of options. Well, you know, it's one of those chicken or the eggs thing. Did did Tesla pare back the options because it saw mm -hmm. that stands are a sinking segment, or did the sales decline because Tesla pared back the options? I suspect, based on what's happening everywhere else on the market, that Tesla looked at the compact sedan segment and realized that there is not a future here. That's not to say the Model Three won't continue to sell decently, yeah. but become a harder and harder sell when people can't get the two features they really want in a car these days, which is a seating position that's a little bit higher and some sort of a hatchback, as well as the theoretical extra seats you can get in the back of a Model Y. So I can see the Model Y beating the Model 3 on, on almost everything except price. The 3 still has a small advantage yeah. if you're price sensitive, but I don't think that the Tesla shopper at this point is price sensitive. Um, so I think they'll just tease out the Model 3 forever. And whenever the time comes to create a new platform that would underpin a new Model Y, they'll just decide they're not going to do the 3 anymore. I, I just... It I, is... I, I doubt uh, they, they're not going to give up 200,000 units a year in sales, which is where we are now. I mean, basically, it's a quarter quarter million Model 3s a year are, are moving off. Um, and it's worth noting that Tesla single-handedly managed to bump the entire compact luxury car segment volume-wise up about 80%. Um, so, I mean, the volume in that segment has actually grown over the last few years in a segment that was theoretically supposed to shrink. So it's not that it's not that the few sedan shoppers left in this segment coalesced around Tesla. They actually grew the entire segment. I also think, though, that because Tesla had such a waiting list for everything, a lot of people were willing to accept a Model 3 if they maybe preferred a Model Y, but the 3 was more available, they would opt for that. It's hard to really say what the true demand level for the 3 is. Mm -hmm. Well, both the Y and the 3 are both available at Tesla dealers ready to buy from inventory. I think a lot of people are interested in Teslas, not necessarily sedans. For the same reason, I think a lot of people are interested in Teslas and not generally EVs. And the three benefited from that an awful lot. If you look at EV sedans from other brands that now have them on sale, they're not setting the world alight. 
um, Tesla is a unique situation because it's always had a waiting list from the moment the first Model S arrived in 2012. It has never had available inventory on the lot of Model 3s or Model S's or X. Well, I mean, right right now, if I look in my zip code uh, right here within 25 miles, there are a hundred and something model Ys and over a hundred model threes right there. Just new, new ones, mind you, not used ones. These are new in their inventory uh, for immediate delivery. I have so, never seen that, but that's amazing. So uh, you're telling me that if you wanted one of those cars from inventory, there's a zero day wait to buy a Tesla. Zero day wait. Yeah, right here. Yeah. Uh, there are a whole funny. bunch. There are a whole bunch that are also low mileage demos. Uh, you know, it's these uh see what it says for delivery timing here but um tesla's tesla's delivery inventory has actually kind of floated and fluctuated and flopped all over the map here based on their pricing so some of it is is difficult really to divine because of this um but if you want to custom order a model 3 or a model y a specific form and you don't want one that's off the lot that's a little bit tricky but actually for the last last you know two three months or so since they dropped the price tag um, you know, we've seen better, better inventory, better availability. And I think that's why they dropped the price tag because we were seeing this, this buildup on Tesla delivery center floors of models that had not been sold. So then they lowered the price tag, the demand went up a little bit, but we still see a, a healthy amount there. And some of this is difficult to really determine here because we, we see still higher sales of EQS than EQS SUV. Very limited set, though, mind you, in the Mercedes data. Uh, it's difficult to really figure out what's going on at BMW with i4 versus iX. They're not priced comparably, so that's that's a bit tricky yeah. as well. The easier thing, I think, is is, is going to be some of these these options that we're going to see here soon, where where manufacturer has a model that's substantially similar in price tag to the other Ionic Five versus Ionic Six. They wouldn't give us any pricing, uh, sorry, any any projection data as far as sales go. Uh, of these two models, um, but they thought that worldwide they would be comparable in their sales, which is a, a tricky statement since lots of countries have different preferences. Yeah, I think it's a little bit difficult to judge up front because Tesla used to break out things like S and X volumes so you could see where the trend was going between their, their original mm -hmm. car and their original SUV. And there was a move towards the X selling more units uh, towards the end of that old style reporting of both model lines. And I don't know, is is Tesla breaking out the three and the Y separately now, or have they homogenized those two as well? Tesla does not break out the, the numbers separately, I believe, but you do have registration data from states, so okay. you can divine that, that information later. Uh, let's see here. Does have individual numbers. They don't say where their source is, uh, but Model Y was 252,000 last year. And uh, Model 3 was slightly lower at 211,000. Yeah, I think that's a trend that's going to gain momentum. I was a little bit surprised to hear that you do have local inventory in Tesla, mm -hmm. but I guess this is a bit of a new world. So recently, inventories become available. I still think that people will pick the SUV if all else is equal. I think that the Model 3 just got a lot of positive press as the so-called affordable Tesla. It got out way ahead of the Model Y. Elon Musk initially thought he would do a full separate platform for the Model Y, scrapped that idea, decided to base it on the Model 3. And I do think in the long run, it would be very difficult if Tesla no longer has waiting lists across the board 
for the Model 3 to sustain volume relative to the Y. Mm -hmm. I think the whole market is going SUV. And when an SUV is basically just a tall riding version of a car with a hatchback, that's the other thing. The Model 3 doesn't have a hatch. So you really have to ask, what is a car at this point? Is the EQS a car? I'd say almost certainly it is. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. Jaguar I-Pace is almost certainly a truck. What's the difference? A few inches of ride height, that's about it. So I don't see the sedan coming back. Go back to the original. I just wonder, wonder, the the question here is, is how much does efficiency play into this customer's choice? And that's where I'm wondering if that's why we're seeing such success in Model 3. Because any way you slice it, the Model 3 will get you further on a charge. On the same amount of energy, you will go further in a Model 3 than in a Model Y. You will go further in an Ionic 6 than an Ionic 5, etc., which is part of why we see them still existing and why the first Tesla uh, you know, the, that they designed themselves was the Model S, because it will simply get you further. Um, so in this world where the customer top line uh, says, I want range over everything. We are generally seeing, you know, various sedan-like profiles, even if it's not a sedan sedan, we're generally seeing much more of that shape, whether it's the EQS SUV or the EQS, or honestly, the Model Y and Model 3, because the Model Y just looks like a uh, Model 3 that's been stung by a bee. Um, but that that's the twist that I see here. It's like, I can see some customers say, you know what, I really want that bigger cargo area, but the Model 3 is slightly less expensive. Generally speaking, a sedan for the simplistic designs, uh, components of trucks and things like that should be slightly less expensive to build. Uh, but then they also want that longer range. And that is definitely a, uh, a deciding factor for some. I think that the Tesla cars across the board have excellent range. And the difference between a 3 and a Y is relatively small. Whereas the difference between something like you know, a Q4 e-tron and a Y is going to be huge in terms of efficiency. So I can see it being a decision point in choosing a Tesla over, you know, some competing brand with mediocre range. But the Teslas themselves, among themselves, Mm -hmm. tend to have pretty good range, even if maybe they've learned to game the EPA rating system a little bit. Um, At the same time, you know, it is one of those deals where the Teslas are generally at or near the top of range ratings by vehicle class. I can't see someone who needs a hatchback deciding to go with a conventional trunk on the three just because it's maybe 10% better. Like, especially since this is the luxury class where people sometimes Mm -hmm. make choices that don't have a whole lot of logic behind them. Like, why does anyone buy a Taycan? It has the worst EPA Mm -hmm. rating of any electric vehicle you can buy. It beats those ratings but it has awful ratings and yet it sells mm-hmm. competitively compared to yeah. the era. It is going to be at least 10% difference too. So it's 10% according to the EPA. So bearing in mind that the EPA test is average 48 miles an hour, 10% at 48 miles an hour, expanding really to maybe 15 or 20% out on the highway at 75 miles an hour. Whoops. I'm hitting my microphone here. Um, but you, know, you will, you will definitely see a notable difference in range between the two on that road trip. So it could mean the difference between going from the Bay area to Los Angeles and stopping once or stopping twice to DC fast charge in a model three versus model Y. It is a, yeah. it is a factor that, that, that shoppers might want to consider and how much of that we don't know, but uh, I'm just, I'm just curious. Um, if you are a listener and you are in this debate, you know, be sure and, and reach out to us yeah, and let tell us, us in the comments below. 
Tell us whether or not you are interested in this or you are just Hatch all the way. The other thing I'm going to say is just that when you buy a Tesla, you know you can supercharge. So range itself, especially if it's a 10% type thing, isn't as big a consideration as if you were shopping other brands where you know people often irrationally think they need the biggest battery and the longest range. I think within the Tesla family, it's easier to accept a little bit less range because you know you're never going to get stranded. I, I would have thought that, but the trend at Tesla does seem ever more range, ever bigger battery packs. You know, they're not designing uh, Model 3 or Model Y to have a shrunken battery pack. They, they recently increased the size of it, actually, uh, notably up to a little over 82 kilowatt hours in both 3 and Y. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm also intrigued by that one. It, it doesn't appear that sales of the smaller range Teslas has done anything at all. If you look at the, the used inventory that's out there, the standard range Model 3 and Model Y did not sell well at all. The Model Y was even only available for just a, a hot second, but the uh, Model 3 that hung out a little bit longer didn't really seem to get much traction. So it does seem that that and this is this is also what we see from other manufacturers, mind you, too. So in the in the customer mining data, when they're doing research and focus groups, customers really, really seem very range driven, um, which is coincidentally why I'm actually surprised that we may see a Kia EV9 in New York with very low range figures and a relatively small battery pack. I'm going to be interested to see how well that works for them. So in short, Americans are in love with various hatchback vehicles, not necessarily sedans, but uh, car biased crossovers are definitely going to thrive in the era of the EV, which brings us to vehicles that are not in any way. Well, they're electrified, but they're not EVs. We're talking about the newly launched 2024 Toyota Grand Highlander and mm -hmm, Mazda's mm -hmm, contender mm -hmm. in this segment, which is the CX-90. Right around the Chicago Auto Show, we got a flurry of news about these two new launches, which are very similar in size and price and specifications. Alex, let's start with the more familiar of the two, which is the Grand Highlander. It's a variation on something we know, though it is very much its own vehicle. What can you tell me about the Grander Highlander? Yeah, I, I, I'm at first. I'm surprised that Jeep hasn't sued them, but uh, <laughs> I guess everybody's had a grand thing here and there. Uh, the Grand Highlander does not share much directly with the Highlander. They're on a related platform inside Toyota, and they share some drivetrain components. But other than that, they're really fairly separate models. The Grand Highlander, they said, was really directly targeting Telluride and Palisade because they really saw the rise of these big Kia and Hyundai three-row crossovers. And I think, honestly, they, they saw Honda's lunch getting eaten by them because the share of the market uh, largely seems to have come from vendors like Honda and Nissan, etc. The rise of those didn't really seem to harm Toyota at all. Sales of Highlander have been, you know, rocketing upwards over the years. But they definitely saw this desire for something bigger. So they cooked up the grander Highlander, which is boxier and bolder and all that jazz. Um, it's going to have some different drivetrains than we find in the Highlander. It's going to have the same turbo engine and the same base hybrid system that we find there. But then it's also going to get the hybrid max system from the Lexus RX and the Toyota Crown if you want a bit more oomph. Um, and that one does surprise me because its fuel economy is not going to be great. It's going to be the more powerful hybrid 
basically V6-like power with slightly better fuel economy. If you want to actually get over 30 miles per gallon, you're going to want the regular hybrid system. Uh, I'll be driving that one in May, so be sure and stay tuned for that upcoming video. And unfortunately, May is probably when we're going to start getting more specifications because Toyota has been very tight-lipped about a lot of the details that we really need to know in order to see how it slots in the landscape. Uh, most notably, all the legroom figures have been reserved. They've just given us third row legroom. But in a car where the second row moves forward and backward, that number is meaningless because it all depends on where the second row is. It does appear roomier than Pilot. But I'm not clear at this point in time whether it is roomier than Telluride, for instance. Uh, the third row is definitely very nice and tall, which is a big benefit if you're taller and you need to jam yourself back there in the third row. The cargo area is a little bit bigger than average for the segment, but it's not by any means enormous. So you'll still find more room in some of the larger SUVs. If, you, if you're debating between something like a Telluride and a minivan, the Grand Highlander is not that minivan. You should just get the minivan, let's put it that way. Uh, the CX-90 is Mazda's basically BMW interpretation. Think of this as BMW X7 by Mazda. Uh, inline six, rear wheel drive, optional plug-in hybrid system, very high spec interior components. Uh, it really has been pushing that premium thing that Mazda has been trying to do for a while. Uh, and honestly, not necessarily succeeding in all of their models, but CX-90, I think it's all worked really, really well. It will technically be available as an eight-seat plug-in hybrid as well, but that eighth seat is very, very tiny. And the third row, also on the small side. So if you are under maybe 5'8", 5'9", the third row will be okay. Legroom is going to be limited, but if you're a taller person, consider it just a two-row vehicle. Yeah, if you want any meaningful space, especially for people in cargo, which is the main reason we buy vehicles, uh, and you want a plug, it's best to just go with something like a Pacifica Hybrid. You may not get the eight seats like the Mazda, but you're going to have more room for people and their things. Now, the Mazda is interesting to me because we do have pricing. It's about $41,000 mm -hmm. to $60,000 or 41 to 61. And, and that's from the basic model to fully loaded. We don't have exact pricing for the Highlander, though I assume it's going to be fairly similar because they're only doing XLE limited and platinum trim. So there's no, there's not going to be a really base entry level version of this vehicle. Right. I write on that front. Yeah, Grand Highlander is most likely going to be within the regular Highlander pricing envelope. So expect it to be maybe two thousand dollars more than a high, regular Highlander, but not perhaps as as aggressive pricing wise as the CX-90 because the target is uh, again quite surprisingly pretty directly Telluride and Palisade and they don't go that high. So expect Mazda to be the price leader in this segment outside of something like a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Uh, Toyota's also not trying to compete with Jeep in any real sense of the, the, the product here. So they're not trying to do greater off-road capability than you find in the regular Highlander. It's going to be substantially similar. They're also not trying to make it more luxurious than the regular Highlander. As far as the creature comfort and materials quality, it's also substantially similar. So this is not, this is not a Grand Cherokee Overland kind of competitor, or in that respect, even a top trim CX-90 competitor. I mean, it, it's pretty clear. Neither one of these can tow more than 5,000 pounds in you know, its ultimate configuration. So it's not going to be a Grand Cherokee competitor on a whole bunch of counts. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important to note that in all likelihood, the Mazda is going to be the driving enthusiast's car of the two. Uh, you're seeing things like a rear drive bias. You're seeing things like 
a um, an eight-speed with a wet clutch. The automatic transmission doesn't use a conventional torque converter. It's got a, a wet clutch mm -hmm. plate buildup like an AMG, which is kind of unusual. But it's probably going to be more tuned for driving enthusiasts, although it seems to be a packaging fail. For some reason, the Grand Highlander, which has a 116-inch wheelbase, manages to pack in a lot more cargo capacity because we don't have specifically... Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily have the head and leg room for both of these, not completely. But we do know that the Mazda is getting 14.9 cubic feet behind the third row. And then with the third row down, it's going to be 74.2. Whereas with the Toyota, you get 21 feet, which is genuinely useful behind the third row. And then if you drop that, you get 98 feet. The Mazda has a wheelbase of 122 inches. It's actually a little bit more than that, which should on paper mean it has you know, like an EQS-like internal mm. volume. It doesn't, though. I don't know how yeah. they managed to put so much distance between the axles and so little space in the oh, past. That's easy, actually, because it, remember, in a rear-wheel drive vehicle, the positioning of the front axle, the rear-wheel drive biased vehicle like the CX-90, the positioning of the front axle can be very different and has really very, very little relationship to interior volume. So that front axle can go right at the front of the vehicle. It could go behind the engine. It can go anywhere in that space. And the box behind it, absolutely no bearing on that. Front-wheel drive vehicles, generally, there's more of a direct relationship between wheelbase and interior volume between the last row of seats and the firewall in the vehicle because that relationship is is a bit more direct. Uh, and that's really what's going on here. The, the CX-90 was designed for a really long inline-six engine to sit long ways under the hood, which is why it has that enormous hood profile. I mean, the hood itself is probably a good six to eight inches longer than the hood that we find in the Grand Highlander, which is why it looks so good from that front three-quarter view and so BMW-like. Exactly the same reason that you find a BMW X7, for instance, that's pretty large on the outside, but on the inside is more or less Highlander-sized. That is important to note. The Mazda stylists went with a big dash to axle ratio to emphasize that it's rear biased. And though I haven't looked under the hood, mm -hmm. I assume this new inline six is going to be longitudinal rather than transverse. Yes, it's it's, a rear, it's the only way to make a rear wheel drive platform. You really can't do a rear wheel drive transverse engine vehicle uh, or not any, in any rational way. Let's put it this way. It is engineering possible. It is not rational and no one does it because it's dumb. Um, but but yeah, so it's, it is it is longitudinal. And that's why we have that long dash to axle ratio. It wasn't strictly a design choice. If you want a rear wheel drive vehicle, you have a long dash to axle ratio or you're sitting on the engine, which is not desirable. Basically, you have a you know a 1990s full-size van. Uh, those are really the only ways to do this, which is why you know three series have that really sexy long hood and uh, you know a, an Acura TLX tried it, uh, but it's not for the same reason. It's styling, but you know Lexus ES short hood, BMW three series long hood, that kind of thing. What surprises me is that there's going to be a fairly comparable top performance model. Uh, from each of these vehicles. If you go with the Hybrid Max system with the Grand Highlander, you're actually getting pretty reasonable credentials. Back before every car had 700 horsepower, you know, 362 horsepower and 400 pound-feet of torque with all-wheel drive would have seemed pretty credible. And at the same time with the Mazda, you've got 340 horsepower from the turbocharged inline-six mm -hmm. and 369 pound-feet of torque. Now, there's also a fairly high-performing plug-in hybrid with the Mazda, that's 323 horsepower and I think 369 pound-feet. And less of a performance option there. It's cool and all. I like that it's got some pickup. I like that they gave it some muscle. But this is really a decision point because you're going to have a plug-in hybrid capability that's not available with the Grand Highlander's Hybrid Max pl uh, 
powertrain. You do get two hybrid options with yeah. Grand Highlander, but no plug-in options. You see that as an advantage on the Mazda's part. It'll be interesting to see how the market responds. We have seen, speaking of wait times from earlier, uh, we have seen decent waits for, for instance, the Hyundai and Kia plug-in hybrids, even though they don't get the federal tax credit anymore. Uh, so whether that will continue or not, we don't know. We don't have any good data on it just yet because that that recently sunsetted. It is worth noting that the CX-90 plug-in hybrid is going to be built in Japan. So it will not get the federal tax credit unless you lease it. And leasing details are still open. We don't know whether or not the Mazda leasing companies will pass that on to you remains to be seen. If they do pass it on as a cap reduction, that could make it very attractive in comparison to the, the Toyota hybrid systems. On the, the side of the Grand Highlander, we have the base turbo engine, which is going to be a little bit peppier than average for the segment. Um, if we're talking about base engines, there are still a few less powerful base engines out there. Not as powerful as the average V6, though. Then we have the regular hybrid system, which is going to be less powerful, less peppy, but likely over 30 miles per gallon. Then we're going to have the hybrid max drivetrain, which I suspect is going to be maybe around 25 miles per gallon combined, most likely. And that's based on what we see in the uh, the RX. This is the closest approximation. And then you should deduct a few miles per gallon off of it because this is much bigger and boxier than the Lexus RX. Performance cred-wise, we're probably going to see pretty similar performance to the Lexus RX as well. The 0 to 60 time is not as swift as you might think based on this price and performance number uh, because of the way the system is designed. Also, since there's no mechanical connection to the rear, you still get a little bit of torque steer, but you don't have as much oomph on that rear axle as you find in, say, a Volvo plug-in hybrid with an E all-wheel drive setup because the battery is not as big. That's true. You get three powertrain options with each of these vehicles. You've got a uh, basic turbo four in the Grand Highlander, 265 horsepower. You've got a now well-known Toyota hybrid system with a turbocharged four and two oh, electric. Ba base hybrid system is regular, two and a half liter. Oh, nice. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, that's the base. That's 243 horsepower. So that's a naturally aspirated four with two electric motors. And like you said, there's no physical connection between the front and the back, the way that's driven. And then you've got the Hybrid Max. With the Mazda, you've got 280 horsepower from a turbocharged six. You've got 340, and then you've got the 323 horsepower plug-in hybrid system. And for both vehicles, the maximum towing capacity is gonna be 5,000 pounds, mm -hmm. but not every version of both vehicle tows the 5,000, some or less. Right. And I was surprised that Mazda didn't try and push that number a bit more towards 6,000 pounds because it is a rear-wheel drive-based platform. They could have designed it from the ground up to tow heavier weights. One would assume that the transmission could handle it, but it could have something to do with the wet clutch that they have opted for rather than a torque converter. There are certain disadvantages in low-speed situations uh, with that type of design, which is why they're all going to be at least mild hybrid. So that's the solution to the clutch engagement issues that we find, say, in Mercedes models with the MCT transmission. Those are very, very rough because they have to slip the clutch to start the vehicle moving. In the Mazda, that's not what's going to happen. They have a lower horsepower, lower voltage electric motor in the base model. That gets the vehicle off the line. 
Then once the vehicle is moving at a speed where it can close the clutch, it then slips and then closes the clutch. So it's going to be a lot smoother, I suspect, in that way. It's probably going to be a little bit more like uh, like the Range Rover plug-in hybrids and the Grand Cherokee 4xe, et cetera, that we see now, that kind of plug-in hybrid setup where you have that motor connected to the transmission for the same reason, because you, you do have that ability to get off the line, then engage the clutch. And if you want the most economical version of each vehicle, then you want to get the standard hybrid in the Grand Highlander, which is going to get somewhere around 34 miles per gallon combined, which is a pretty good number given the size of the vehicle. And then for the Mazda, of course, it's going to be the plug-in, which, well, the jury's out on what kind of mileage it's going to get when it's running as a hybrid, but you're going to have just over 17 kilowatt hours of battery charge and then 20 to 30 miles of all electric driving. So depending on your needs, this could be a really great way to replace gas and a lot of the efficiency economics will come down to whether or not your commute or your daily routine requires more than the all electric mm -hmm. range. If, if so, yeah. you probably want to go with the Grand Highlander and its conventional hybrid setup. Hybrid Max is going to be mostly performance on the Highlander. Right. It's going to be fun, but it's not going to be terribly efficient. Yeah, reading the tea leaves, I am not expecting astronomical fuel efficiency numbers from the plug-in hybrid system in the Mazda. My personal guess is that it will likely end up just under 30 miles per gallon when operating as a hybrid. But those details we should know more about next week. I will be driving the CX-90 by the time that everybody's listening to this, so be sure and stay tuned for that video as well. Uh, some of the details are still a little sketchy. We don't know whether we will receive official EPA numbers at that time, but we will probably have at least some driving impressions with the plug-in hybrid system to let you know what it could behave like in real-world driving. And also remember, the old CX-9 had an average of 23 miles per gallon. So I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that the hybrid version of the, the plug-in hybrid version of the CX-90 might be 15 to 20% better than that. I think that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. And that would probably put it right about in line with your estimate that's just below 30 miles per gallon. Yeah, it's most likely going to be more efficient than something like a Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid just due to the design of the hybrid system. Since it's not a serial hybrid, it's a true parallel hybrid system, it's probably going to be more fuel efficient. Now, continuing this thread of price versus efficiency, we're in the midst of an EV pricing war. It started in China with Tesla reprofiling its price structure over there. That was long mm -hmm. before it came to the United States, but it was in February when the federal government decided it was going to leave the Inflation Reduction Act uh, tax credits in terms of X until the end of March. Suddenly a whole host of vehicles were now available with mm -hmm. the federal tax credit. And Tesla notably also added discounts on top of that at, during a period when it seemed initially in February like demand might be dropping. So some Tesla models, when you combine the price reduction with the federal tax credit, saw reductions of up to 20%. And on the back of that, we saw a response from Ford, which said not only was it going to offer uh, lower prices, but it was actually going to offer refunds to people who had previously purchased the car in mm -hmm. 2023 before Treasury made up its mind. Following that, we saw notice from Lucid that even though its cars are too expensive to qualify for the credit, it was going to kick in $7,500 anyway. So is this general? Are we seeing a price war among automakers or is this an EV specific price war? 
It seems to be EV specific, and it seems to be in relation to higher interest rates and some trailing off of demand as a result of some of the higher interest rate changes. We have seen some parallels in the ice world, though. For instance, uh, there have been some idling of some truck factories in the United yep. States because truck inventories were starting to build a little bit. Manufacturers were a little bit cagey on that. Uh, but obviously, in the EV segment, other manufacturers are willing to chase Tesla down the uh, the rabbit hole a little bit here. Uh, we've seen some EV companies that have said, nope, we're not going to do any of that. We're not going to chase the, the price tag. Most notably, Polestar has not moved their pricing at all. They haven't sold very many vehicles either, but they just haven't bothered. Uh, also, Volvo doesn't seem to follow them, nor BMW or Mercedes, etc. Um, Rivian has not adjusted their pricing. It already went way up and they can't deliver enough. So I think, I think it just really relates to some of the demand profiles or in Ford's case, their desire to really keep ramping up that volume because they really want to be the volume EV company in the US. Uh, there's been a lot of talk at GM about being that EV volume company. And I think Ford um, really revels in you know silently having their numbers just tell speak for themselves. Let's put it that way. Um, but I don't know if it has had much of a true impact on demand on Mach-E or on Lightning, which has been pretty strong over the last uh, calendar year. Um, you know, I would say that that really when we're thinking of of the Tesla shopper and especially Model Y. Uh, the direct competitor as far as broadness of the portfolio, range, um, per some performance numbers, et cetera, but most notably range, style, et cetera, it is Mach-E. That is the direct Tesla competitor there. It's probably the only one, honestly, that we have for the Model Y. Um, and sales haven't been anywhere near Tesla's models, but they have been fairly good. I mean, it's basically Model Y, Model 3, then Mach-E as far as volume goes. Um, so it is interesting that they also followed uh, down that same rabbit hole. We don't know the entire tax credit or profile for either of these vehicles going forward because Treasury still has yet to release guidance for the battery composition portion of this. But it does appear uh, that the base Model 3, for instance, will not get the federal tax credit, at least not all of it, because although it's built in the US, it uses a CATL battery. So unless Tesla decides to change the battery pack that they're using in that model, the base Model 3 will not get that tax credit. Uh, the other models should qualify for it, uh, depending on exactly how the sourcing percentages go and how the reporting process is, et cetera. Ford seems a little bit less confident about the full credit. We know it's going to get the manufactured in North America side of that, so half the credit. The full credit remains to be seen. And we see relatively similar uh, comments actually from General Motors, which was surprising. So the Ultium family of vehicles doesn't appear that their materials are sourced from the right places as far as the raw materials. So even the ones in the right price range uh, and manufactured in North America may or may not qualify. And then lastly, it seems like the only other guidance we've had, approximate guidance, was from Genesis on the GV70. It's being built in the US. It's the first eGMP-like vehicle because it's not not quite full eGMP. It's going to be built in the US. It will qualify for at least half of it. Um, guidance is, again, yet to be announced. But that pack is assembled in South Korea. So uh, the materials and sourcing there may or may not qualify, depending on exactly how the guidance goes for the final assembly point of all of that coming together in their factory. And initially, as we rolled over into 2023 and the Inflation Reduction Act took effect, uh, virtually no electric vehicles were eligible for the full 
tax credit due to a number of factors such as where they're made, how they're made, sourcing of battery components, battery assembly location. But in February, when Treasury decided it was going to basically suspend judgment and offer the full tax credit on vehicles that met essentially just the price criteria, immediately about 27 all-electric vehicles and another dozen electric plug-in vehicles became eligible. Mm -hmm. Now, the sunset for this looks like it's going to be about March 31st, at which point those sourcing factors that involve where the batteries, minerals, and internal components come from, those become a lot more important. It's not at all clear who's going to qualify for a full credit at that point or whether anyone even will, um, which leaves us with the leasing loophole, where mm -hmm. as far as I can see, uh, you can get a $7,500 tax credit on any EV under the IRA if you lease it through your company and write it off as a business expense. Many asterisks. Uh, so it doesn't require that you lease it through your company, the leasing company that you're leasing personally through. So if you, oh, okay. you personally, you, Tim, went down and leased, leased a vehicle, theoretically, that $7,500 tax credit could apply as a cap reduction on your lease if the leasing company wants it to. And that is a tricky thing because remember, your business has to have a federal tax liability in order for it to get the tax credit, just like you would. So uh, this is the other thing that a lot of people don't necessarily think about is if you don't pay anything in federal taxes or you pay less than $7,500 in federal taxes, which is actually a huge number of Americans, mind you, um, if that is you, then the tax credit is either meaningless or its meaning will scale from $7,500 to whatever you owe because it cannot take you past zero. And it's worth noting that a, a upper income family that's that's in the 80th percentile of, of income level in say the Midwest with a mortgage and two kids might end up paying very little to nothing in federal taxes because the child tax credit's pretty healthy and then the mortgage deduction credit, et cetera, could get you effectively to a zero tax liability, even though you could be making $150,000, $175,000 a year in Detroit, for instance. So that is entirely possible. Your tax situation will apply. Now, on the leasing side of things, it's basically the same thing for a leasing company. There are a lot of reasons why a captive finance arm of a company might not make a tax profit one year or the other, depending on deductions brought forward, depending on business realities, or depending on how the parent company just wants the taxes to sort out. I mean, the management fees and things like that can be applied. So not everybody is applying that tax credit to leases because not every company is intrinsically profitable in that way. That's, that's the weird and tricky part here. Um, for instance, it appears that uh, like with the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid, we were looking that up today, looks like that they are applying the $7,500 tax credit there. It looks like Genesis is not with the GV70, at least not at the moment. So some of those details are still uh, open for debate. It also appears that Hyundai may or may not with the Ionic 6. So you know, some of these some of these are just very open-ended questions. Um, but if you do qualify and the leasing company is going to do that, it can drastically reduce the, the capitalized cost of your lease. Yeah, two things there. The, the operative word is refundable. A refundable tax credit is a tax credit you can collect even if you don't have sufficient tax liability to encompass the amount of the credit. This is not a refundable tax credit. And that's an important point that Alex makes. The other thing is I was conflating another tax hustle, which is that you can lease a car, even a supercar through your company and write that off as a tax deduction. 
Leasing, on the other hand, um, through a leasing company, which may be manufacturer associated, is right now the only way you can get around the price caps on the vehicles mm -hmm. that are eligible for the IRA tax credits. That's 55,000 for a car, 80,000 for a truck or SUV. But if you lease, in theory, if that leasing company meets the criteria, you could collect the $7,500 in spite of the fact that you're leasing a Rivian or a Lucid or an EQS right. or some such thing. So that's how that works. I don't yeah. know that that has a sunset on it. Like, I don't know and if the, that- and the that does not. The Treasury issued guidance and they said it does not. The The key thing there is that you're not getting the tax credit. The leasing company gets the tax credit and they may or may not apply it as a cap cost reduction on your lease. So so you aren't going to be applying for the tax credit. Uh, it's it's the leasing company that, that may or may not there. So lots of weird loopholes. Uh, leasing, this is probably less of a factor for luxury customers. And Tesla is kind of a weird duck here because their customer base is, is, is heavy on the luxury side, but they're also a lot of, a lot of people that are new to luxury brands and Tesla's average transaction price. You know, there's a lot of argument about this. They're a luxury brand. Their average transaction price is over BMW. Tesla is a luxury brand based on price, based on shopper demographics, et cetera. Um, but leasing is very high. It's generally way over 50%. Uh, the lease target at many car companies is actually 75 or over percent leases. So when you take a look at cars that are going off the lot at a Lexus dealer, BMW dealer, et cetera, very, very heavy on the lease side. So if those vehicles and their leasing companies do get that tax credit and pass it along, that's going to be the biggest deal here because generally, statistically, more people will be leasing than buying. Yeah, and that's always been the case. Um, luxury brands lease a huge proportion of, of their vehicles. Uh, but also the question of whether or not you're able to collect a tax credit on an EV when leasing. That's been a question since the beginning mm -hmm. of yeah. EV leases. That, that was a problem under the old regime of yeah. tax incentives. So that continues today. What I'm wondering about is whether anyone will be able to collect the full $7,500 after March 31st, because I can't think of a single vehicle that meets all the criteria, even with something like the Bolt, where it's union made in the United yeah. States. I still think the sourcing of the battery materials fails to meet the criteria. So the leases will still be okay because that that's separate. They don't have that's to qualify separate. for the materials as well. It does appear or or it is highly likely, let's put it this way, it is highly likely that the Teslas that are built in the US with US built battery packs, they will probably be okay. But we don't have any confirmation on this officially. The rumor mill has long been that the core material sourcing is enough from free trade countries that it should be okay. It's a weird calculation and exactly where the treasury rules line up is the, the devil in the details here because it's a percentage of the value of these components and manufacturing costs are allowed to be in it. So it's not just the raw materials. So if your raw cobalt came from China, that's theoretically bad, but if it's only 5% of the cost blend, doesn't matter because you're still in, you're still in the window. So if the refining is done, if the higher value components are done in the right countries, then you're still okay. Um, it's not until later that nothing can come from these countries of great concern, which would be Russia, China, et cetera. That's a little few years down the road. That would be a really steep bar uh, because at the moment, 
some of the materials can come from there. Some of the processing can even be done there. It just is that value portion. And what what does that look like? How is that exactly calculated and assigned? Um, it is most likely that the batteries that are built in the United States or batteries that are built in South Korea will be okay. So maybe the LG Chem um, SK batteries might be okay because South Korea is a free trade country. So they're in the club there as far as the battery pack assembly location goes and the sourcing and processing. If there is a huge portion of the battery pack and assembly, et cetera, that's done in China, that's absolutely no. Uh, so Polestar 2, definitely unlikely. Base Model 3, definitely unlikely. Anything with a CATL battery pack, BZ4X uh, with, the, with the CATL battery pack, definitely unlikely as well. What about GM and Ultium? And then in the Bolt, those batteries are made in the US, but they're not Ultium. So what about Bolts and Ultiums? GM has said in a in a uh, an investor call not that long ago that they do not expect to get the full credit immediately. So exactly where that lies, we don't know, but it does appear that they've at least signaled that no, they, they believe it probably won't qualify. All right. And Alex, we have many media. How can people keep track of the progress of this issue on Auto Buyer's Guide? Yeah, so be sure and check out the EV Buyer's Guide channel. That is where we will be posting a video update just as soon as we have that Treasury guidance. So hopefully the first week of April, uh, although Treasury has not said, hey, it's coming first week of April. So uh, it, it may be delayed. Uh, you can also find us at Facebook, the auto slash the auto buyer's guide. You can find us on the regular channel, Alex and Autos, of course, this podcast where you can choose whether you want to watch us or whether you want to just listen to us on your drive. Toodaloo. See everybody later. <laughs>